That is a great hymn with a great message, our God, He is alive. And tragically, while there are many who believe that God is alive, in effect, doubt the kind of awesome power that He has, the creative power that He exerted as He created all living things, the pinnacle of which was mankind himself. Some doubt that kind of power in terms of how it is depicted for us in Scripture. But the writer of Psalm 119 was not among those who doubted the creative power of God. And as we continue our study tonight of Psalm 119, Looking at the next paragraph, the next section of eight verses in this acrostic psalm, we see this expression from the inspired writer. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. If David be the writer of this uh, psalm, it was uh, David who also expressed something very, very clearly about the creation of all things, and specifically the creation of man as the pinnacle of God's creation in Psalm 139. In that beautiful psalm, in Psalm 139, verses 14 through 16, there he wrote, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all are, were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there was none of them. Before we talk more about this aspect of this verse, the next part of the verse says, Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. But in the passage we just read from another of the Psalms, in Psalm 139, after saying, The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them, the next verse there says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! So immediately following that expression by the psalmist in Psalm 139 about the pinnacle of God's creation being humankind and being fearfully and wonderfully made, he then in the next stroke of the pen, as it were, expresses the importance and the power of the Word of God, as he does here in Psalm 119, verse 73. Don't we wish that everyone living today who has lived and whoever would live would confess with the psalmist to God, your hands have made me. And don't we wish that even those who confess that God did make them would, would confess that He made them just as Genesis 1 says He made them? Why do men doubt the creation account? Why do they doubt the power of God to create all living things on planet earth in six literal days, and on that sixth day to create man fully formed, marvelous indeed, as the work of God. 
And yet we live in a world where, according to the Pew Research Center in their recent survey, 60% of those living in America believe in some form of evolution. And you may have been noticing in the local newspapers the controversy that is now raging at Bryan College up in Dayton. There was an article uh, in today's uh, paper about that. And there was an article uh, last Sunday, March 2nd, and I have the paper here. The headline is Adam and Eve, period. And that's the statement, in effect, that those teaching at Bryan College are being asked to affirm, that indeed they comport in their thinking with what Genesis 1 says about the creation of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, period. And that it was not uh, an evolutionary process by which God ultimately brought us to where we are. But in that article... A week ago, I want to share just a few statements from the early part of that article because I think um, they are very revealing in terms of what they tell us about the mindset of tragically more and more people in our world today. The article begins, Bryan College was founded on the back of the country's most famous debate over creation and evolution, Dayton, Tennessee. Bryan College in Dayton, Tennessee, the Scopes Trial. There, William Jennings Bryan, Bryan College's name for William William Jennings Bryan, who uh, was one of the lawyers there who was defending the creation account. But then the article goes on, and the biblical literalists, the stalwarts, the six-day creationists, flocked here, Dayton, to Dayton, even when society began tipping toward a more scientific understanding of human origins when Darwin, not Genesis, became the more convincing explanation for many. What's wrong with that statement? There's something terribly wrong with that statement. When society began tipping toward a more what? A more scientific understanding of human origins? There is nothing scientific about evolution. Nothing whatsoever that is scientific about the theory of evolution. And yet, that is stated as though that's a known fact. And that's part of the problem. Intimidation has led to capitulation with a great many people. The evolutionists have intimidated people to the point that many have capitulated and begun to compromise. And that's why now perhaps 60% of those in America believe in some form of evolution. This article goes on, but over the years, more diverse views on Genesis 1 and 2 crept in. Some professors, staff, and students didn't just identify as young earth creationists. Their views became more nuanced. They called themselves progressive evolutionists and theistic evolutionists and old earth creationists. They found ways to reconcile faith and science. Let me tell you. Faith and true science never needed to be reconciled by any professor or anyone living. Faith and true science have already been reconciled by God. There is no contradiction between faith and true science. 
But there is a contradiction between true faith and pseudoscience, the science or the knowledge, as Scripture says, that is falsely so called. And so, indeed, we are, we are in a battle. We are in a battle that is being waged even on campuses that are named for William Jennings Bryan in the heart of where creationism was once defended many years ago. And now there is a battle raging even there. There's a battle raging, you may have noticed, too, out of the 9-11 situation where those two beams, giant beams that were found, melted, melted together, uh, forming a cross, have been made a part of the memorial for 9-11 and the 9-11 victims. And have you seen recently where atheists have now filed suit to try to remove that, to try to stop that? And in that effort, they are actually saying that they are suffering dyspepsia and headaches and physical infirmity as a result of having to look at two beams in the shape of a cross. That's where we are. That's where we are. And that's why, that's why it is so important for us to stand where we have always stood if we're faithful children of God here tonight, and that is with the psalmist of old and with all of those who by inspiration penned these words in saying, your hands have made me. How? Just like Genesis 1 says you did. Just like Genesis 2 gives further information as to how God did it. That's what we believe. And why shouldn't we when we simply take time to objectively examine the overwhelming evidence for creation and not for evolution? Your hands have made me and fashioned me. And then he says, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. I see a connection there in those two statements between creation and revelation. And what the psalmist is saying in effect is, as I read from one writer, which I thought was well put, you've made me to stand Now make me understand. God, you made me to stand on two feet physically. Now make me to understand. And doesn't it make sense that if indeed the God of heaven created this marvelous human body, that he would also reveal to his creation how to understand his revelation so that that which resides within this body, the human soul, which will not die but which will live forever, can ultimately live forever with the God who created us. And think about what a terrible waste it is for mankind, for the atheists and the agnostics, to view, as they obviously do and cannot deny, the complexity and the intricacy of the human body, and yet to say that's all there is. That's all there is. 
as complex as it is, as intricate as it is, as amazing as it is, that's all it is. It's a body that will die. Nothing more, nothing less. Why would anyone want to believe that? Why would anyone want to believe that? But how could anyone truly believe that if he or she has certainly gone to God's revelation? With the attitude that the psalmist expresses here, in effect, you've made me to live, now help me to learn what it is you want me to do with that life that you have given me. In other words, what a terrible waste it is. What a terrible waste it is to use this marvelous body that God has given us in a way that does not glorify Him and that will not enable the soul that dwells in that body to ultimately depart that body and be with God. What of a terrible terrible waste. The next verse, the psalmist says, You're, those who fear you will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in your word. Isn't that a marvelous statement? Think about it. Those who fear you will be glad when they see me. What that raises in my mind is a question as to how people feel when they see me. How do people feel when they see you? Are they made to feel glad, those who fear God, because they see you as one who also fears God? And there's a camaraderie there, and there's a precious fellowship there that is more precious than any other earthly relationship, as we have often pointed out. But here's another reminder of it. Isn't there a, isn't there a special bond that we have with those who truly fear God, that is, those who are living their lives in harmony with the will of God, are we not completely comfortable with those individuals? And are we not somewhat uncomfort uncomfortable with those who are not living as they should, those who do not evidence that they fear God by the lives that they live? In other words, where is the closest, most precious relationship to be found and sustained? In the kingdom of God, the church of Christ, for which Jesus shed his precious blood. And that certainly suggests that those who fear God are glad when they see me in worship. And I'm glad to see them in worship. And by the same token, when I don't see them in worship, when I know they could be in worship, that doesn't make me glad. And I know that it doesn't make those who are thinking as they should in the kingdom of God here glad either, does it? It makes us sad, not glad. So therefore, let us live in such a way to the best of our physical ability so that those who fear God are always glad when they see us because they know, they know the kind of people we are. And they're encouraged by that faithfulness. They are encouraged by the knowledge that we love the Lord and that our lives demonstrated. In other words, let us never be a discouragement, but always strive to be an encouragement to others. The psalmist then declares, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. 
There have been other passages in this psalm that we have already studied, other verses that indicate that the, the writer was under some deep affliction and had suffered uh, affliction. We do not know specifically of what nature that affliction was, but he's saying that the affliction that God had allowed to come to him was an affliction that was given or allowed to come in faithfulness. In other words, here is an expression that even in adversity, I will not accuse God of deserting me. I will not accuse God of being unfair with me. I will not accuse God of being unfaithful to me. Does God chastise his children? Does God allow uh, suffering? Does God allow affliction to come into our lives? Indeed. Indeed, he does. He doesn't shield us from, from all adversity. We've talked about it on more than one occasion. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 beginning, is a passage among other passages that reminds us of the attitude that we should have when that adversity comes. It should be the attitude that the psalmist expresses here. I will not doubt the faithfulness of God even in times of adversity. Here's what the Hebrews writer declares. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. And then he declares in verse 11, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, but listen to this, to those who have been trained by it. Adversity, suffering, does not yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness to everyone. But it has the potential to do that if you will be among those who are trained by it. If you will be among those, as the psalmist was on this occasion, who understands that God is faithful at all times, that God does not shield us from adversity, He does not shield us from suffering, it is a part of the human existence. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. We should never blame God, become bitter toward God, but rather better, the Bible makes abundantly clear, as a result of that adversity. And never accuse God of deserting us, and certainly never desert God as a result of adversity. This statement from the psalmist reminds us of that. But it also reminds us in the next verse that especially during those times of adversity and when we've come through them, we certainly pray fervently for his merciful kindness for comfort. Because there are times when we especially need comfort. There are times when we especially need the comfort of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need the comfort that comes from God according to His Word as His servants. And so His plea further is, Let your tender mercies come to me, 
that I may live. For your law is my delight. Your law is my delight. And where is the source of those tender mercies that provide that comfort for which the psalmist pleads here? The Word. The Word of God. The Word of comfort. Remember 1 Thessalonians 4, 18? After that one section where Paul wrote to reassure those brethren whose loved ones had died in Christ, they were not going to lose their reward. When Christ comes again, he says, they'll be raised and will all together, those who are still alive at that time, will be caught up together in the air to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, in this way, we shall always be with the Lord. And then he says what? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let us never underestimate the comforting power of the word of God. It has power to comfort if we'll turn to it at all times and especially in those times when adversity has struck. I think about Isaiah chapter 40 and I think about after the Babylonian captivity was predicted the fact that God's people were going to go into a period of captivity because they had brought it upon themselves and they were going to suffer for a period of time. But after chapter 39 of Isaiah, chapter 40 begins this way. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God brought affliction upon his people there because of their sin. But that merciful God, after bringing that affliction, also through the prophet Isaiah says, Comfort my people and tell them that as they turn back to me, I'll return to them. But what about the proud and those who will not turn to God? How does the psalmist feel about them? He expresses it here in verse 78. Let the proud be ashamed, for they treated me wrongfully with falsehood. Let the proud be ashamed, or let them be brought to shame is his plea. Anything wrong with, with pleading that those who were proud and lifted up and arrogant and rebellious against God... Anything wrong with pleading that they will be brought to shame? No. Because ultimately they will. And really in effect to plead that they be brought to shame even in this life in the hopes that it might bring them to their senses would certainly be appropriate for the child of God to pray. But the proud will be brought to shame. And those who have rebelled against God and remain rebellious against God. But notice something the psalmist says here. They've treated me wrongfully with falsehood. They've lied about me. They've brought false accusations. And how am I going to respond to that? I will meditate on your precepts. Is there a precept that might come to your mind that might fit in here with what the psalmist is saying? At times when people are treating us wrongfully, 
when they may be lying about us, when they may be manufacturing lies, speaking ill of us? Is there a passage in the New Testament that comes to mind? Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Blessed are you when men shall revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The psalmist is simply expressing the attitude that Jesus said all of us as his followers should have when people don't treat us as we would hope to be treated by them. We don't lose our faith. We simply continue to meditate on his precepts and realize that he said it would be this way and let that reinforce our faith rather than destroy our faith. Now here's another expression that is somewhat similar to the one that we looked at just a few moments ago when he said in verse 74, those who fear you will be glad when they see me because I've hoped in your word. Let those who fear you, he's back to that thought again, let those who fear you turn to me or return to me. Who are they? Those who know your testimonies. If this is a reference to the fact that in his affliction or because of something he had done that he had turned away and was afflicted and now had come back, If that's the context, then he's saying, let those who fear you return to me because they know that I've returned to you. But again, whatever the specific situation was, what he in effect is reminding us of is that fellowship, once again, is the most precious relationship that we have and that we need to be the kind of people to whom others can turn and upon whom they can rely. We need to be among them. Those who fear God need to know that they can turn to us because we also fear God, and they can count on us, and we can count on them. Again, it simply reminds us of that beautiful relationship that we have in Christ Jesus. Though this was before the new covenant, the principle I believe is clearly there. And finally, the psalmist declares, Let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes that I may not be ashamed. Let the proud who will not turn to you be ashamed. Let them be brought to shame. But please, please do not let me be brought to shame. And how can I keep from being brought to shame? By having a heart that is blameless regarding what? This book. Some translations translate blameless as perfect, but the idea is blameless. The idea is not sinless, but the idea is obedient, blameless. In other words, one who is faithfully with all of his or her heart, with all of the heart, following the statutes, the commandments of the Lord, that I may not be ashamed. When? In this life now? Perhaps. He may have that in mind, but he also may have in mind that I may not be ashamed when I stand before the judge of the universe, that I may not be ashamed then. 
There's a correlating New Testament passage, I think, here that ties very well with this verse from the psalm. And that's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. There Paul writes to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In that context, he's saying, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. In other words, at that judgment scene, the context I believe there clearly shows he's talking about when you stand at the judgment, make sure that you can be presented to God as one who is approved of God. How can you do that? In the same way the psalmist says he would have to do it. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes, that I may not be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15, that I may not be ashamed. Therefore, if indeed I want a pure heart before God, a blameless heart, it will have to be blameless because I've kept his word as a faithful follower so that I can stand before him ultimately in judgment with confidence, not with fear and trepidation, anticipating, anticipating because I can know that I know him if I keep his commandments, anticipating well done, good and faithful servant. You've been sinless? No. You've been faithful. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We can all hear those words, but only if we have blameless hearts brought into harmony with the will of God as revealed to us in his word. Where are you tonight in regard to his statutes? Where are you in regard to the new covenant, the covenant which will judge every single one of us here tonight? Have you obeyed the gospel, believed, repented, confessed, and been baptized? And if so, have you remained faithful to God in your worship, in your life? If not, there is no better time to come home and to simply say, to your brothers and sisters, and most importantly to the God of heaven, I have sinned. Please, please let my heart once again be blameless before you. And it will be if you truly repent and if we pray together to a merciful God, he will extend those tender mercies in his forgiveness and therefore comfort us in a way that man cannot extend comfort, but in a way that only God can do it. If that's your need tonight to come home, we plead with you to do so. And if you need no public response in any way, because you can say with confidence that you're doing all that you can to maintain a blameless heart before God, so that you will stand before him and not be ashamed. May God bless you to continue to live that kind of life. And may you never allow any departure from any aspect of God's word.
to sway you and to cause you to turn from him. If you need to turn to him tonight, come now as we stand and as we sing.